Hello, and welcome to Imprinted Echoes, a family-friendly Numenera actual play podcast. I'm Zan, and I'm your GM. Thank you for joining us today, and as always, we hope you're staying safe and healthy. I hope you all enjoyed the finale last episode. As promised, this is the first of two interstitial episodes before we start up with season two. It's something of a post-season wrap-up talk with the cast of the show. And quite honestly, it doesn't need much more introduction than that. So join us as we discuss the recent adventures of Nehemiah, Smallren, and Jory. So, we're here to uh, give a little bit of post-season one talk. My initial thought was to call it a talk back because I'm a theater person, as we all are, but this isn't a talk back because no one's going to be talking to us. We're just talking to ourselves. Can we use like an AI thing and have it ask us questions and we'll just answer them? I I think I'd be creeped out by that, to be completely honest. That would be very We can Um, always pretend that Mr. Frodo yowling outside my door is people asking us questions. That's true. You know, losing his mind right now. What makes you think it's not exactly? Yeah, he is. He is asking questions, but they are all, why is the door closed? (laughs) (laughs) Why do I not have food? Oh, he has food. (laughs) Why aren't people loving me in this moment? Yeah, pretty much. I did not think about how I was actually going to do this. I'm not used to like being me. (laughs) Something that we don't necessarily do on The podcast is something that we are all relatively used to in our home games, our personal games, is something called favorite moments that we have all learned to kind of be a part of near the end of sessions. And while we don't do it for this, I thought it would be a good structure to facilitate this kind of wrap-up session. So the general format of it is a favorite personal thing, a favorite thing for the GM. I'm also going to offer player moments for that because I feel like I should be a part of this conversation. (laughs) And some sort of like group moment. And these will be like for the season at large. And we'll talk about other things as they come up, but it always seems like that is a good jumping off point to start this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll go. Cool. All right. So I'll go down the list a little bit. Personal moment. Oh boy. I know there are some Jory fans out there. I happen to be one of them. Uh, <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope so. I hate Jory. Um, I sincerely hope you like your character. <laughs> it's, it's, a lot. I've always found favorite moments tough because in some, especially at the end of a campaign, because it's mm. you always want to. There's some like large at large general things as you know, as well as a, an acute thing. I, you know, I'm gonna pick acute, and I'm gonna go with for some reason the one thing that sticks out into my head, into my head. I hope it doesn't stick out into my head. Stick out in my head is a uh, naming box ladder. I think I don't know why there have been so many good ones. Box ladder. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't that just like in the moment it was like Joy picks the first two things yeah. that she sees <laughs> she, she Kaiser so said that like it, it just it yep and then because I had to imagine what she sees too <laughs> it's the most general like think Aladdin street setting sort of thing for some reason I'm like there would be a ladder and there would be a crate somewhere so it's really a box ladder <laughs> um That's really good. Yeah. And I I feel like that's also very, there were definitely some heavy Jory moments, but I feel like that's indicative of a lot of what Jory's character is, is it's just this kind of 
oddly carefree and in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, I think in the moment is, is the best. Like, it doesn't want to think too much about the past, doesn't want to think too much about the future, mm-hmm. just want to do what's happening right now and make the best of it. She lives in improvisations, basically. She yeah. does. Pretty dynamite. Um, favorite GM thing. The first few moments that we went to the beautiful land of sound were just so mind-blowing. Just everything about it, the way it sparked all of us to get creative so fantastically. I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can ever feel as inspired by an environment as the very visceral ways in which we first explored that, in which it was first described, in which it was, I just, uh, I can't, I really loved this campaign, y'all. <laughs> so it's, I'm really glad. Oh my god! I mm. I will say that that moment in particular was the moment I have been building up to. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll talk more about my plan of that in a little while. But I had had that moment in my mind for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So I knew that it was going to go over well, but it landed so solidly and so. Like you said, like viscerally and and visual somehow. Yeah. Even though it wasn't visual at all. Yeah. Literally any sense of it. Well, because in a weird way, it was like, this is going to date me a little bit, I think, for you younger kids in the audience. But it it felt... very fantasia it's very like yeah. there was there was like specific stuff from fantasia that i was almost picturing in my mind and i can't for the life of me remember which musical piece it is but i remember there being one where it was just like building this picture based off of like the sound as it was happening mm-hmm. and that was very much what was in my head when we started really getting into that and you were describing how things sounded and it was just like okay we're visual people so we're probably on some level building visuals in our mind based on what we're hearing yeah because that could so easily just been a concept that was described or that we somehow interacted with externally but the fact that we were inside it too and had to adapt to that and had to as people try to manifest i mean just the the yeah it just spawned so much i, I can't even mind blown I, I i loved it so 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 much so thank you i don't even thank I you can't even oh, gushy gushy <laughs> favorite group thing I wanted to go broad with this one again, but I think I'm going to pull it more specifically is probably the way we all came together in making Jory a god. (laughs) Multiple times. Multiple times. times. But specifically the first time. And I I remember the cascade of like roles and events and something that happened to just, okay, I'm going to add to it this way. I'm going to add to it this way. And Mm -hmm. I feel like. I don't know, I got a kick out of that. And I think it was one of those people really bringing out their characters, attitudes and strengths in, in, in a mechanical way and in a group dynamic way. Again, there's just there's just so many that it's really hard to, to pick. But I'm going to go off of that so we can just get some more talking going. So, OK, those are those are three things that sparked immediately for me. So there's that. I also love the whole turning Jory into a god thing and that making a thing. I also love how that did actually come back exactly three times. It was like the magic, like storytelling thing of like the recurrence. And then the last time it comes back was like a huge story beat where we really needed to have a win to get all these people (laughs) out. And it was like, okay, Jory, you're going to (laughs) be. 
And it was so good. It was that might have been one of my favorite like individual other player moments was just your monologue that you just all of a sudden were just like, bam, I am your God. (laughs) And it was so good. And we were all losing it. I really know what my neighbors are thinking. I would also like to point out that I, I know that most people listening only know Rin within the context of Jory right. at this point. Or and a little bit of Adriel if you listen to the Patreon yeah. episodes. But when RPing, Rin has two modes. It's either what you know as Jory or super intense, no holds barred, just go for it energy. I, it, yeah. It's like... There's very often little in between. <laughs> pure pure chaos. Yeah. Yes. It goes I also realized in the course of Rin doing your favorite moments that for those who have not listened to Patreon episodes, this might be the first time they've heard your real accent. That's true. Because well, you always you always you almost, you almost always speak in character voice I even do. when you're I do. Didn't somebody mm. think I was British first? Yes. <laughs> there was a there was a couple of people who asked if that was actually your accent. Well, uh, how do you know? I'm putting on an American accent right Rin, now. Rin is an incredibly accomplished actress, so who knows? It's true. She may have been lying to all of us for yeah, all these no, years. No, Rin, you gotta, you're going to take the compliment. You are going like to take the take compliment. I, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hide behind Peapod. Those of you who don't know is my stuffed cactus that uh, Zan and uh, Zan's wife got me and cheered me up great during a time of deep despair. <sighs> so it's true i'll jump on in cool favorite nehemiah moment has got to be confronting the prisoners yes like it took me longer than it usually does to find nehemiah in the way that i am usually comfortable with but that was the moment where it's like okay this is the character this is who he is and Having that moment is, it's so satisfying. It's great. I love it. Favorite group moment, I'm going to say, would be the three of us getting our bearings in the soundscape. Like where we are like really trying to literally at that point feed off of each other so that we can continue to survive and exist in that world. And that was a big like, okay, we are moving forward and we are going to do this as a team in a way that we have not had to be quite yet. And that was very cool. Favorite GM moment. I'm bouncing between a couple because obviously like Rin is correct. That moment is 100% up there at the top. But I'm going to say the end of game heist the way that you did that and rolled with our shenanigans, <laughs> like yep. 10 out of oh, 10 yeah. high five and all the angels yep. like was phenomenal. Oh, yes. I think that's one of my favorite things to do as a GM. Like, yeah, I have my stories, mm-hmm. but honestly, rolling with player shenanigans and bouncing off of what you all come up with is seriously one of my favorite things to do. 100% agreed. Yeah. Well, and it's one of the things you do best, which is very, like, speaking as, and I'm sure everyone else here will agree, speaking as someone who occasionally does GM, mm. it's incredibly difficult and you do it very well. Thank you. 
And I would agree with your Nehemiah moment. I think that's where we really, like, we, we, we've seen the character. Sure. Quite, and, and, and bits and pieces and, and little flashes of, mm-hmm. of what the core of Nehemiah is. But that was the moment where everything kind of came into full focus. Right. And it was just a, a, like, oh, yes, this is the intensity. This is the conviction and the drive that Nehemiah has. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that snapshot of it was just su- in such a perfect moment, too. Right. It was just very well-timed and very well-executed. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, if I'm recalling correctly, too, it really, really helped drive home those dynamics between the characters, too, mm-hmm. because it was one of the first times I feel like it provided a, a difference of opinion that was so broad that it, yeah. it really kind of made everybody's personality come into sharper focus, you know, right. as well as yours. Absolutely. I think Smallrin and Nehemiah were relatively on the same page as far as how to handle the prisoners, but it was definitely uh, different thoughts of how best to go about it. Now, that was one of my favorite things for Smallrin, too, was very much like, and I, this is kind of a general thing as well, but that moment is a really good illustration of it, is leaning into the moments where her moral grayness really come through, where it's like, yeah, no, you guys don't have to kill them, but I will kill them, and I just, you don't have to be there for it. Like, we got to do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was poignant for Nehemiah because for the most part up until that there was a lot of siding now I don't want to say siding because it's not like you were all ever against each other but for a lot of the time leading up to that Jory and Nehemiah had very similar opinions about things and the way to handle them Mm -hmm. and that was the kind of moment where the line was crossed for Nehemiah Uh and and that was that was a big and important moment yeah like I said, I think the moment with Smallrin just being like, yeah, I'll poison them was one of my favorite specific character moments. Because again, like I, and obviously listeners don't know this, but as a person, I play a lot of support characters, a lot of nurturers. There's a reason mm-hmm. that Farhura exists, and that reason is every character I've ever played. Um, <laughs> the reason is Bridget. The reason is Bridget. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I have been trying very consciously um to branch out into, you know, people that have a little a little less of that in them. And so it was a lot of fun playing Smallrin in that way. But I really I loved finding those moments where it was like, yeah, no, Smallrin is does not have the same morals as everybody else. There's a lot of very stark divisions here between what Smallrin knows other people think is okay and what Smallrin is willing to do. And so that was a lot of fun to play with. It's very interesting, too, that those levels of what Smallrin would be okay with were never forced on anyone else. It was never, well, this is what needs to be done and I'm going to do it and you can't stop me. There was very little, like, edgelord to Smallrin's development. It was just like, I'm willing to do this if this is what needs to be done. I know you're not and that's okay, but I will. And if that's the decision, I'll do it. Yeah. We're not going to decide that. Okay, that's fine. Just know I'm here if you need me. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing, too, is like I was trying to find an interesting way to do serenity because that's her her character sentence is that she's serene. And I was like, okay, there's ways you can take that. And kind of the obvious way is like the monk and the that sort of like very zen. But I was trying to find a different way to do it. And I was like, she is 
very much a utilitarian and she understands mm-hmm. that she is in a lot of ways was created to be a tool. And so there's things she can do. There's things she's willing to do, but she doesn't always have like, it's not that she doesn't have opinions, but she doesn't always have strong opinions and she doesn't always feel the need to impose her opinions. It's just very much like, here's the facts of the situation and we can move on from there, but here's what I'm willing to offer. Here's the toolkit that I have for you. Use it if you need it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was really fun. In a slightly goofier thing for both, this is a combination of personal and group. I love that it became a thing that Smallrin liked teasing Nehemiah by sneaking up on him. <laughs> that, that made me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best yep. running gags <laughs> in the season, I think. Yep. And additionally, the two of you played it so <laughs> well. You never, never once, like there was no editing, did, did Bridget have to say, all right, I'm sneaking up on Nehemiah now. She would just say it and Chase would immediately react with, you weren't in the scene until now. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's actually how it started. There was a time where, like, I hadn't (laughs) talked for, like, 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden I popped up and Chase just went with it. And then after that, it was a thing. And I love it. That's so perfect. So good. I mean, that's the thing. Like, that's that's one of the things about these types of games and frankly the like the medium of tabletop podcasts that i like in general is just like maybe you could write this but good god why would you yeah. <laughs> yes yeah like why yes. why would you go through all the work to write it when just coming up with it and it being natural it's just so much better every time there is a place for audio dramas oh, oh absolutely 100 yeah. percent and in a place for like written out like character backstory development, but the moments yeah. that happen organically in the game sometimes end up being some of the best connections. Mm-hmm. Like I have not made much of a secret that I am very interested in doing like scripted audio drama with GLM at some point. Uh, yes, r- r- yeah, everybody, get Rin and and Zan are both raising their hands. Like it would be so cool and so fun. And I'll just put it out there: the reason I haven't is because my favorite audio drama is uh, Limetown season one. It's phenomenal. If you're a fan of audio dramas in this medium, listen to it. It's so good. But it is deeply intimidating as somebody who would like to do that because I want to go to bat at least as hard as that. Yeah, and but that is a, a that is a. That's a chase hang-up. I mean, it's also a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot more writing involved and a lot more coordination than just the dramatic Mm -hmm. improvisations. And I have also have a mentality of how I would like to do that, but that is a discussion for another time. Fair. Fair. Yeah. Yep. Even though it came at the end, I think it is still one of my favorite moments in the whole thing, was the the group debrief slash therapy session. At the very end, where Jory finally opened up about her backstory and we convinced her that she deserves to save her little brother. Yep. (laughs) And that was just, that was incredible. Honestly, like just getting to be, and again, completely unscripted, had no, like, had not discussed that going into it. That happened in the course of the session and Mm -hmm. was just incredible. And also such a great accidental lead in to our next arc like Mm -hmm. it was just like okay this has happened very organically and by the way this is the perfect way to end this arc and tease the next one 
a little bit of, I won't say spoilers, because it's not like we have anything like fully prepped yet. Part of the plan that we had already talked about in going into season two was keeping these characters. We wanted to continue exploring the the stories of, of uh, Nehemiah Smallrun and Jory. And also get into a more populated area, somewhere a little more urban, somewhere uh, a little more civilized, so to speak. And so I had been exploring different options for what's the pull? How can we get them out of Legam and into a different area? And I had some stuff on the table, but you guys provided (laughs) that for me. Like, I don't need to go back to my list to figure out which one is going to work best. You have one for me already. I know how you're getting out of this settlement and into somewhere a little more populated because you made that happen. So all the better, honestly, that it happened that way because I don't have to convince anyone that this is something that you would need to do. I don't have to find a solid plot hook. Mm -hmm. You have it. Yeah. Happy end of the arc, GM. Here, have a plot hook. (laughs) With a bow on it. (laughs) Tis all of our gifts to each other. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, Oh. that's so good. And then GM. I've been trying to come up with like a specific moment and it's all just so good. Like, that's the thing is I have said this before. I say this to you all the time, but I deeply, deeply enjoy being in games that you run, Zan. You are very good at what you do. The the collaboration with your players is always on point. The visualization of worlds is always there. The way that you describe setting is phenomenal. But then also leaving us room to play with stuff, like giving us room to create and giving us room to react to things in new ways and then kind of building off of that on the fly. It's it's great. It's wonderful. I like particular particular standouts are obviously like the heist getting into the sound world. But there are just so many. I one of one of the things that has not been mentioned yet, the description you gave of and now I'm blanking on the name, but the giant floating over the graveyard. Oh, yeah. um, Orb thing. Oh, the the Ogarek. The Ogarek. Yes. Yes. Um, all of your descriptions of the Ogarek and like everything that happened in there. Also your ability to just completely tear our hearts out. Like when yeah. we met Molly and then found Molly's partner uh. and just like, uh, also dream tree. Uh. Hey, Hey, that weird dream tree yeah. Yeah. where, yes. where Nehemiah almost was trapped forever. Yeah. The, uh, Very nearly. And that, what is it? The truth, the truth telling or fact, truth telling, but, uh, uh questions. Oh, questions. questions. Yeah. yeah. Oh. The questions only. <laughs> yeah, ask questions uh, to make it go up uh, and give answers to have it go down. Oh, uh, man. And, and shooting off of that, too, is the, the three different places and the way they connected and the way that they were related to the song and the song. It's, ah, God, it was so good. I'm sorry. I just, mm, mm. <laughs> I I... I'll say with the three places, the orb and Legam is something that I created of my own being. But the Ogarek and the Beanstalk were already a part of the lore and the settings within the Ninth World and within mm-hmm. Numenera at large. But what I really love about the way that Money Cook Games writes their settings is that it leaves huge portions of information not missing, but intentionally vague Mm -hmm. to allow people to insert meaning where it's needed, to connect things where they want to connect them, or to come up with a purpose or a a storytelling connection that fits their particular game. And 
that's just what I ran with mm-hmm. in those two scenarios. I was like, all right, I want there to be a giant triangulated thing. You know, it's got, if it's a communication array that was supposed to talk between dimensions, it had to have been massive. So here are these three things. I looked on the map. I'm like, oh, that's like a perfect little triangle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go with it. Ta-da. But I will accept the compliment that I, I am good at, at those things that you, you said, but I will also give credit where credit is due in that the setting that Numenera has in its books leaves an immense amount of creativity to be folded into it. It's such a, a really wonderful base to jump off of, like a springboard after springboard. And, and you jump so gracefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a swan. <laughs> Noted swan. Um, well, and that's the thing, like, like the entire Numenera book, like from the character classes into the world itself is all, it's all written to be very plot hooky. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It doesn't give you the answers, but it gives you a lot of just very good questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When Zan and I were first talking about starting the show. I devoured a good chunk of one of the two D books. I forget which one it was. Uh, Discovery or Destiny. Yeah, one of the two. On a flight down to and while I was like in Florida visiting my mom, you know, back in like, what, 2018, 2019, something like that. Like, that was the thing that stood out to me and reading them is like, oh, this is a book of questions. Mm -hmm. I often say that the reason that this podcast started is because I wouldn't shut up about Numenera. <laughs> you did the right thing. Yeah. You, you talked about it enough to, to get me to read a thing, right, which right. takes a while. I, exactly. That's on me. <laughs> but also the setting is just a, a huge, mm-hmm. huge love of mine. I've always loved science fiction. That is, was my first love before fantasy. Oh yeah. And I learned to love fantasy, not in like I had to be coaxed into it, but like I came to that later in life. Mm-hmm. Like I know a lot of people who, you know, grew up on certain pieces of media, but mm-hmm. you know, for me it was like Star Wars and mm-hmm. Star Trek and um, Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. like the original one, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And my favorite book was Ender's Game. But it was building up to then fantasy and, and learning that kind of later in life. And then melding the two was just mm-hmm. like, holy cow, it's the best of two things I absolutely love. Yeah. And the, I, the, the I, Jedi to wizard pipeline <laughs> is, is a straight line. Uh, it is. It really, really is. Yeah. Like I have seen people who decide to have hot takes for a living online make the Star Wars is just space fantasy argument before. And oh, it I is. don't. It is. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct. It, space opera is the equivalent to high fantasy. Yeah. Sure. Just in a different genre. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's one of those things where like the idea of fantasy versus sci-fi being less about the setting, the technology, whatever. But like what I think of as true sci-fi being like speculative, being much more Mm -hmm. like pushing ideas of like what could be, what could happen. Here's where we could be going. Whereas Star Wars is very much about narrative, which is 
much more what I think of when I think of fantasy. It's much more <laughs> yeah. about like the characters and the story and the the plot of what's happening to these characters than it ever is about the technology or the aliens. Like right. as opposed to like Star Trek, which is very much looking at technology and like the interactions between species with very different mm -hmm. cultures and what does it mean when you come upon a s other civilization and how do you interact and what is our responsibility and it's it's yep. much more like kind very of social and it's very social there's a lot of mm -hmm. ideas and morality being played with yeah. in a much more nuanced way i think than you get with star wars where it's very much especially in the original movies it's you know there's the light and the dark side of the force and they're having yep. this epic battle based around these characters to me Numenera combines both of those in, in, in kind of a weird way. Rather than it being speculative about what can we do in technological developments, it's what was done, what was this technology for. So it's a little like retroactive in that way, but it's still like very focused on discovery and exploration because mm -hmm. of that. But then there's also that fantasy element of pushing the three arc storyline, the characters and, and their development. And, that, and character development is kind of inherent in a TTRPG. Right. Sure. Anyway. <laughs> it's kind of what it's based on. Yeah. But the idea that these two sides of things and the idea of like science fantasy mm -hmm. is very... Mm -hmm heavy throughout the entirety right. of it. Well, and I think Absolutely. there's also, there's a reason why those two genres get lumped together all the time. Like there's a lot of bleed over. There's a lot of kind of cross contamination happening there where yeah. I, I think it's very hard at this point in human history to have pure sci-fi or pure fantasy anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, just look at cons. Like it's, it's always yeah. both. You know? Oh Yeah. Which, total, totally unrelated, and I hope I don't derail us too much, but I did think of something else. Chase, wasn't there a thing really early on where Jory always called you by the wrong name? Yes. Was that yeah. a thing? Okay. It was okay. for like the first two episodes okay. yeah. or so. Okay. I think that was supposed to be a long writing thing, and I just gave up. <laughs> there's only so many yeah. combinations of a name you can... Right, well, and there's... Anytime you start up a game like that, you're going to, like, start running with a thing and it's not going to end up taking yeah. off. You're dipping a toe in what can be right. used. You're, you're quite literally playing in the space. Oh, yeah. Ah, mm -hmm. play with me in the space. Yeah. And then Bridget, I absolutely adored the fact that when we were in the sound space, and I don't know why I keep calling it that. I'm just going to keep calling it I like that, it. How you had to deal with your personality and your uh, fortes working against you because you're so quiet it could have made yourself disappear how amazing was that that, that was, was so honestly cool. very fun to play with because yeah it's like smallrin's key components are she is silent like very nearly silent in like a weird almost supernatural way silent and she is incredibly physically competent mm -hmm. and those were two things that suddenly like the physically competent thing did not matter. And the silence thing was actually dangerous. Yeah. yeah, And that's just what a, what a neat dynamic on every level that was. It was, it was, that was cool. So I don't I also, mean to derail us. I just no, totally no, did this no. in my head. And I, well, and I loved too. like, if, talking about like character dynamics in the sound space versus I loved that Jory is the one who became like the orchestrator. Jory is the one who really jumped straight into it and was like really good at it. And I think it has a lot to do with like, I think going back to the idea that like Jory lives very much in the here and now. And I think that let her 
be somebody who just like take this and this and this and this and just bam and music she's a jazz pianist <laughs> she is she's she's an, she's an improvisational wizard um see also immediately jumping into the role of a god three separate times and crushing it every single time but that was really that was really fun as well and also just the fact that jory is the most verbose out of the three characters smallrin is very quiet and very deliberate and nehemiah is willing to kind of step back and be the imposing presence as opposed Mm -hmm. to being like still with the silver tongue still able to be the face but not i feel like it's not default that's like a role that nehemiah switches on um but jory as a person just is a talker jory exists in a fairly audible space at almost any given time bridget i feel like in the soundscape you're like the time signature and and the key signature nehemiah's like the baseline and the thorough driving force and then jory is like the electric guitarist who keeps trying to go faster and faster than the <laughs> actual bpm of everything and everyone but then annoyed. but then also just like <laughs> Just producing the sickest riffs and <laughs> and then falling down on stage. <laughs> I mean, but in a cool way, right? Still on stage. <laughs> oh man! I know that in our group, it is not usually a GM who does the and any favorite moments, but I, I'm going. To. Yes, mm-hmm. as you should, uh, please. So I'm going to do kind of like favorite individual character moments for all of you mm-hmm. and then some favorite personal stuff. So honestly, the as an overall group, I'll, I'll start with that. The thing I love the most is that never once did all of you not work well together. Like from the get-go, it was very clear that you all saw the value in each other's skills as characters and and what you could bring to the table and that you know, similar goals. Let's make, let's make things happen. But by about the time we got to the beanstalk, there was a very unique, like melding and party dynamic that had started to develop that once you got into the tumult was absolutely concrete. There was no question about who was doing what, how to make it happen. And, and there was obviously like planning that happened and quite a few times where there was just like long swaths of time where you were developing how things needed to happen and what the best solutions were. But everyone had a very unique understanding of how the group was supposed to work together, which all led up to that very final moment where everyone threw everything they possibly could at the last possible moment. What I love the most about seeing characters come together is when that moment of pure synergy happens. Yeah. And that was a very organic lead up to that at the end. Mm-hmm. I've seen it happen in groups at varying times throughout the courses of campaigns. But the fact that it kind of came together so uniquely at the end there in such a very important way was just really wonderful to watch. Like just one of those moments where I just like sat back and yeah, I was still like running things, but I was just like watching. It was really something to be whole. Uh-huh. It was just awesome. It's all your fault. No, no, I'm a facilitator. Facilitator, enabler, however you want to pitch it. Mm. Yep. Individually, 
am also going to shout out Nehemiah's prisoner moment mm. because I had kind of like peppered in some things for that group of people. When you guys first saved them mm-hmm. from that trap in the forest, I knew that if you didn't do something about them, then what was going to happen? I've, mm-hmm. I've tended to formulate a lot of my plot lines on a, if this, then this kind of mentality. Mm. So if you just let them go, I didn't question them further. If you didn't give them specific directions or in some way, I don't want to say dispose of them, but like, you know, make any sort of clarification about what was happening. They were going to go on to Legam and try and get a hold of what was there. Uh And Nehemiah's reaction when he found out that it was those same people that he helped, that he protected. Yeah was such a phenomenal moment. Like, yes, like the end when he confronted them, but like when he found out who they were, that protective rage was palpable and just such a wonderful, wonderful moment to see that boil over. And again, I I think really solidified a lot about the character in that moment, like you said. Yeah, so for me, it was a little bit sooner than that confrontation. It was was the realization of who they were and what they had done. Sure. For Smallren... I honestly think it was a lot of the conversations with Adriel. Because my point with Adriel was to give Smallren a touchstone of that similar energy. That morally gray, that kind of creepy baseline to bounce off of. But in those moments, I think we got a lot of insight into what Smallren is actually willing to do. We see it in, in other places, but like talking to someone else. We saw a lot of that come through. But then conversely, outside of Adriel, seeing Smallrin begin to care about these people, like seeing Smallrin begin to care about Jory and Nehemiah and to an extent some of the NPCs as well, the dynamic of those two things. So like seeing those conversations of like, this is really kind of a creepy character, but wait, she actually really does have like some caring moments here. I think that dynamic was just one, really well played, but two, well developed. Like it wasn't just an immediate thing. It had to grow over time. And and that can be hard to do. Yeah. And you did it very, very well. Thank you. And I actually just remembered something because you had said earlier that there wasn't any grandstanding. There wasn't the edgelord thing. But I'm remembering actually there was some earlier points where I kind of did go out of my way to like have her say things just because she knew sh- they would shock people. Mm-hmm. Like, I think early on, there was a lot of emphasis on her stating very explicitly the types of violence she was willing to do in any given situation, like just to kind of mess with Jory and like Jory especially, but also Nehemiah and just like stating it very calmly, but making a point of, no, I'm dangerous and I enjoy violence. And that gradually did fall off as she got to a point where it's like, no, they know what I'm willing to do. And like, I know it creeps them out. It creeps Jory out. We don't need to. We don't have to do that anymore. There's that persona that you put out when you like first meet people and you're getting to know them that eventually dissolves away. And that was a very interesting development for Smallrin in particular, because it was the same personality, just a different explanation of it outwardly. Mm-hmm. Smallrin's like secretly got a little bit of a gushy center. Now it's mostly wasabi, but it, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's like a oh. hazelnut right at the door. <laughs> hazelnut and wasabi. Oh my god! <laughs> it makes some weird sort I of just... sense. Like 
but like I really just love the idea. Like, oh yeah, the small one, small one has got, got a, a warm, gushy center. It's just wasabi. Yeah. <laughs> it is warm, hot even. Oh my goodness. Clear your sinuses right yeah, out. Incredibly yeah. practical. Yeah. Incredibly mm-hmm. practical. You might not like it while it's happening, but mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Afterwards, you'll recognize it was good for you. I've done well. <laughs> I got through it, and then there was a then there was a hazelnut, so it was great. Oh my god! Um, something else, group dynamic wise, that uh, that popped into my head was any time a threat emerged, how we aligned ourselves both both emotionally and physically to get prepared for something and how indicative of our personalities that was as well. I keep thinking about like the first time we went down into the underneath Lagan. Yes, exa- yeah. I, we didn't really have a name for it. I often called it the facilities, the facilities yeah. or the lab. I don't know. I the lab. Ship, but um, it, it was never really a ship. It was. It was, it was literally an underground science station. Uh, And we were in the hallway and just our insta reactions to threats, I think were really unique. And I think a lot of that has to do with the system, too, because it's not just like suddenly you roll for initiative and and all this stuff happens, even though that does happen. It doesn't feel like that same rigid sort of, okay, you know, something about it feels a lot more organic than it does in something like D&D. It's much less modal. Yeah. And it allows for a bit more personality to come across in your... Mm-hmm. Uh, in your interactions with threats. So, and I, I think that was really cool to watch every single time. I think my, so jumping back to character moments here for Jory, I think we can all appreciate the character arc that Jory has gone through throughout all of this. But I think the particular moment is right after the bounty hunters came to try and take you back. And those two were defeated. And Jory's initial reaction was, I'm too dangerous to be here. I'm leaving. And what that, I think, brought out of the group and you was very, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, but it was, it was just a good moment. It was sad. Don't get me wrong. Like, absolutely gut-wrenching. But I think that kind of started in motion a lot of what the rest of the development for Jory was going to be this slow acceptance that she deserves things and the idea that this is a place that she could belong. Mm-hmm. Um, you just played that very, very strongly and very well in terms of allowing those heavy and not so comfortable emotions to sit within the space. Thank you. That was uh, great. Great fun too. I hate to say play because that doesn't even feel like the right way to summarize. It is a great thing to feel and to get, you know, feel very much in that and and get such being able to bounce off everybody else so well and and the dynamic of the environment and the circumstances and everything. It was just um, absolutely perfect, you know. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll end with a personal moment. Yeah, Um, yeah, for sure. I really love the way that I worked within the three spaces that you went because I, I kind of developed Lagam like at, literally as you explored it I had a list of different places that you could be um, different things that you could develop and I picked the most interesting one every time you opened the door I picked the most interesting thing that you could run into mm-hmm. for the Ogarek there is within one of the adventure books Escape from the Jade Colossus there is a ruins generator oh, cool. and you can use it in the moment and like roll for what the characters find next but I instead decided to do it 
kind of like as I was creating this space within it. So some of it was specifically chosen because I knew I wanted particular things to be there. So I chose things from those tables and lists. But in terms of the layout and where things were, it was relatively randomized. And it worked out really, really well. And then the beanstalk was kind of like an amalgamation of things I pulled from different ruins. Because uh, I've said that Numenera adventures, the written ones, kind of fall into two categories. It's the explore the ruins with the weird thing or look into the weird thing that's happening with this community. So it's either like very dungeon delvey or very kind of like social interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked some of my favorite elements from like a lot of the dungeon delvey stuff and altered it to what I wanted to fit and how it was going to work into things and what it was. So I, I love the way those work, but I also, I reveled in providing things to you and not giving a reason for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because part of so much of this world is you don't know what the heck this was used for yeah. or nope. why this exists. You can figure it out. So, yeah, you figured out the discs that questions and answers made it go mm-hmm. up and down. But never once did I provide a reason for that. And I love the, being able to have mystery that isn't – if you had the answer, it would be interesting. But it wasn't so key to knowing exactly what was going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love providing a little bit of that. So I really love just building each of those spaces and presenting them to you as well. Sure. Both this as a system and as a setting is the whole idea of all of the the many, many layers of like just civilization and backstory and all the things that you could never possibly know that no one knows anymore. And just the opportunity there to have weird stuff, like (laughs) just to have things and be like, yeah, no, once upon a time, there was definitely a reason for this. And we cannot even conceive of what that reason is anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the fun thing about it. Why on earth would you ever create a piece of technology that operates on a questions and answers basis? Like, (laughs) what is the purpose of that? and being able to like come up with weird justifications for it in your own head or just skimming straight over it and saying well i guess this is how it is is honestly kind of fun as the opportunity for character choices as well like deciding how your character interacts with a world where there are all these weird conundrums and things that no one understands Mm -hmm. um it just adds another layer we love our layers (laughs) like ogres and onions Mm -hmm. And parfaits. And parfaits. Cakes. 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 Cake set layers. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's a hole in this cake. I have a couple of things on this list. If we want to cover them, we can. I had the idea of kind of mid-conversation about um, how, how did your character sentences play out, if we want to talk about that, or if you have any thoughts on NPCs, character arc, plots. So Smallrin is a serene jack who wields power with precision. So jack is obviously kind of jack of all trades. You can do a lot of things and kind of take it in different directions. Um, But wields power with precision is kind of meant, I think, for nanos more than anyone else. It's intended to be much more almost the equivalent of like a magic user, whereas Smallrin didn't because she was a jack, she wasn't actually a nano, so there wasn't the same level of, like, interaction with things like esoteries, with, like, actually having access to that. And so what it became for her is just, like, personal facility was what she was wielding. And not to say, like, I would actually love 
note to the GM going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love once we get into a more urban setting to play a little bit more with like that side of it, because the way I flavored it was her mentor had been a nano. And so she knew about these things, but didn't necessarily have the ability to do it herself. But technically, one of the special abilities that I have is called training and precision. I'm trained in all esoteries. And so there wasn't a lot of didn't come across our desk very often. But it's something that I would like to continue to play with with Smarin is that she has a certain understanding of these things. But yeah, no, that was kind of fun was to go into it initially being like, okay, this is something I can play with and then being like, no, it's not like she's she's not a like a half wizard or anything like that. She's literally just somebody who is very precise. Her precision is her thing. And so that was what I leaned into more so than the the power side of it. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah is a protective glaive that speaks with a silver tongue. I think he fell right into those lines yeah. pretty much the entire way through. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Now, like in the exact inverse of Bridget, I built my character to be as about on par with my typical character build as I <laughs> tend to go. Just because it it's like the, the most out of the ordinary thing is that he was like an up close and personal fighter. Yeah. And I've only played like a small handful of those over the years. Although thinking back on it, the closest I have ever come to playing something like Nehemiah was a dwarf paladin that I had in D&D for a rip there, who is about as different personality wise as you can get. Yeah. Much gruffer, much angrier, but, you know, charisma number do charisma number. So, yeah, I was actually fairly surprised when you picked a glaive. I knew you would go with like something talkative, but I kind yeah. of more expected a nano or an Arcus, if I'm being honest. I, I seriously considered Arcus, but I wanted to challenge myself a little bit. Fair. But I also know myself well enough that if I don't pick something that doesn't have like some sort of a charisma or talky base, I'm not going to have as much fun. Oh, for sure. So like on some level, you always do want to challenge yourself and push yourself and see what other types of characters are like and what they can do. But at the same time, like you want to have fun. You want to do the thing in the game that you like to do in your open world, you know, video games. My default is going to be to make a stealthy, sneaky like dex build. And I will do that every time because I know I will enjoy doing that in pretty much any like rule set that you give me. Same goes for tabletop games. Now, when we eventually do leave these characters behind, am I looking forward to playing something wildly different? Absolutely. But at least we're comfortable. Absolutely. But at least starting off with Cypher and, you know, frankly, still getting the rules under my belt. It is the thing about, you know, only playing a a game once every once a month or so is that it is very easy for the rules to in the moment just slip your mind, especially when things are very similarly named. Yeah. Effort and edge specifically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a bad memory for that kind of thing at the best of times. I need to schedule a flight or a train ride or something at some point in the next couple of months just so I have an excuse to sit and reread the source books again. And you want to talk about Jory's character sentence and how it played over the course of the character arc? Yeah, um, so she's a curious delve who exists partially out of phase. And I think I did definitely use that to formulate a lot of her personality. 
curious is pretty obvious because she's like a baby kitten running around, <laughs> confused by everything, but also intrigued by everything. Delve, we didn't get too much into it, but it's a lot of, again, matching that sort of, I'm going to dig for the shiny. I don't really know what the shiny does, but shiny is sort of thing. And uh, she started to learn more, actually, like stat-wise as things went on, which is what happens when you're curious and learn stuff. And the partially out of phase, again, I think is very indicative of that sort of seat of your pants, uh, sort of, you could be all over the place. And um, for whatever reason, even though it was so important to her character and so useful and everything, occasionally, I think she would just kind of forget that she could do it. (laughs) Which is very her. But it all translated so well to what ended up being her personality. It was all very much a spark of, okay, how is this person going to exist? And of course, some of making those choices toward the beginning were, okay, I think this is this personality, what can back that up? But just as much, you know, I think these are, the sentence also influenced the personality. So it was sort of a a back and forth, pretty solidly all around. (laughs) In my mind there's kind of two schools of creating a character it's either you come to the table in the game with the idea of this is the kind of person with the the kind of story that I would like to tell where does that fit within what's available to me and then the flip side is looking through the options and seeing "Ooh, if I put these things together what kind of person does that create and I don't know what methods each of you necessarily used for that, for these particular characters. But regardless, I think it did kind of all start to feed into what you just said, Rin, was this kind of cycle of the character choices feeding the story and the development and the development then feeding back into the character sentence being this kind of wonderful cyclic nature. Mm -hmm. I think she actually started off a a little bit more stoic. Because of what she'd just come from and her way of compensating for that was uh, when she had to interact with people, especially when she was trying to keep them at arm's length, was to develop this sort of personality that no doubt was part of her personality to begin with, but really kind of brought out that I can't let anybody know what I am. Let's keep their focus on other stuff. (laughs) That was a really fun character development to watch was watching Jory get comfortable with the group and starting out very much on her guard and very much stoic, but then also to some extent like chatterbox to distract from the fact that she's not giving us much and watching you begin to let her get comfortable with us and watching her begin to feel safe to feel like, you know, these are people who has her back. And especially after we got rid of the bounty hunters, I think Jory really began to interact with us in a much more comfortable way um, Mm -hmm. and a slightly more, slightly more vulnerable way. She was still pretty guarded, but um, that was, that was a lovely progression that you did very well. She started to exist partially in phase. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just thinking about like the differences between the three of you and that particular thing of, of like how comfortable with the group at the beginning versus at the end and, and the way that you kind of all presented the characters. So like from the get-go, Simone was like, here are the things I can do. Here's what I used to do, who I used to be. I still kind of am that person. So 
Here we go. Let's make it happen. And Jory was like, nope, nope, don't look at the me behind the curtain. <laughs> don't, no, nothing there. Uh-uh. I can't do anything. What are you talking about? And Nehemiah found a nice middle ground in the, here's what I can do. Mm-hmm. Here are my skills. You you can know them. But I don't really want to talk about how I how I know them. I don't want to talk about where I was or the reasons that I know these things. But you can know that I know them and know that I am capable. But we'll talk about that other stuff at a later time. We're going to talk about Serratus. <laughs> right. Oh, we will. Oh, we will. Oh, we will. <sighs> we will. We will be talking more about Serratus, along with a number of other people. The way that the sentences worked out and the, like, coming into your own and trusting the group, it was all very narrative, very mm-hmm. tied together. It was very organic. It's wonderful. I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Thank you, everyone, for joining us with this uh, last bit of talk on season one. And I hope you're looking forward to season two as mm-hmm. well. And thanks. Season one done. Thanks, everybody. See you next time here in the meat place. <laughs> no. Oh, is that where we're going? Oh, no. That's not what was meant by, by Urban. Oh. <laughs> uh. Thank you so much for listening to episode 74 of Imprinted Echoes. If you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Imprinted Echoes and our website at imprintedechoes.com. That's where you can find links to the Ghostlight Media merch store and our Patreon if you're able to help us out monetarily. And on that note, I'd like to thank Kyle, Ice Tear Brewing, and Joel for their continued support. If you'd like to help us out in other ways, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast leave us a rating and review, and tell a friend about the show. As always, you can also find our hosts on Twitter, myself at Covered and Sawdust, Chase at TQ Loudly, Rin at Rin underscore Moran, and Bridget at Really Bridget. And be sure to follow our network, Ghostlight Media, at GLM Pods. Thanks once again for listening, and I hope you'll be back in two weeks to hear our Mechanics Talk episode of Imprinted Echoes. And until then, may your ciphers never malfunction. Imprinted Echoes is produced by Zan Campbell-Johannes and Chase Greenlee and is edited by Alex Berkowitz. Original show theme music is by Justin Longacre. This has been a Ghost Light Media production.